Good morning again to you all. It is good to see each of you. Uh, As we near the end of our series on Luke, we're picking up this morning immediately where we left off last week, which if you don't remember, we were looking at last week where Jesus celebrated the Passover uh, together with his disciples and he instituted the Lord's Supper. And this morning we're looking at uh, some after-dinner conversation that they were all having um, with each other. Uh, And they were enjoying this shortly before they left to go to the Mount of Olives where Jesus would be betrayed. And what we're talking about this morning is what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. And this is a core issue for Jesus. If you've noticed, he has spoken to this issue repeatedly throughout his life and his ministry that we see in Luke. But it's also a a core issue for us because to misunderstand greatness as as God defines it for us is really to misunderstand the very nature of God's kingdom. And before we dig into this, let me just remind you of a few things that the disciples have witnessed Jesus do during the time that they've been with him. They have seen Jesus perform miracles, uh, miracles of healing. Uh, They've seen him heal people of their sickness and in their infirmities, and he has helped people that no one else was able to help. They've seen Jesus exercise uh, power over the dead. They witnessed him resurrect somebody from the dead. They've seen, they've seen Jesus have conversations, conversations and exercise power over even, even demons. And they have listened as Jesus has spoken with an unusual authority. And somewhere along the way, the disciples became convinced that Jesus was much more than a rabbi whose teachings were valuable. They became convinced that he is the Messiah, the one whom God had promised to send to rescue his people. All the way back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered really quickly, he said, you are the Christ of God. And so it's really funny as we look at this passage that the disciples are in proximity to the great one and they're having this argument with each other about who is to be regarded as the greatest. Let's look together. This is Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 24 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we've gathered before you. Uh, We have sung to you. We have confessed sins to you. We have heard of your forgiveness over us. Um, We have prayed together. Lord, I ask that during this time, as we hear from your word, that you would take the truths that we need to hear and bring them to the deepest parts of our souls. That you would speak to us in these next few moments. And that you would help me, your servant, to love your people well and to honor you with what I say. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I don't know how many of you are fans of the band uh, U2. Uh, I'm not going to actually ask you to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to or require that of you to be a fan to be a fan of you too, but I grew up listening to their music. I, I'm a I'm a great big fan, and that's why when he did an interview, I think this was about 15 years ago that he did an interview with uh, Jan Winner, who was the editor in chief for Rolling Stone. Um, it, it was just a time for all you two fans to geek out together because he uh, he. Um, uh, they, it was about as comprehensive an interview as, uh, as I think it could be. I mean, it must have spanned several days because they talked about everything from like early life, the formation of the band, different influences. Um, uh, they talked about his perspectives on faith and politics. I mean, just nothing was off the table. And it was when Jan Winner was asking Bono about some, Bono, the, the, the lead singer, um, <clears throat> it was asking about some of his influences, and of course, they talked about all the the big hitters while he was coming up. Bono, it's really fun to listen to him reflect on what it was like for him to see Elvis do what he was doing. Um, but they, you know, they talked about the Rolling Stones and some of the early British punk music. I remember they talked about the Clash, and and it was when they began. Bono began talking about John Lennon that it was like the whole conversation almost slowed to a stop. And he, he needed to talk, he, 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 he began reflecting on what felt like, uh, an, uh, like a very, very intimate moments where he was alone in the room with the headphones on listening to John Lennon's music and the power that it had over him. He said this uh, about John, if you, you've ever heard Bono speak, you know he's prone to hyperbole. <laughs> But he said, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. This is what he said of John Lennon's music. He said, it had the power to change the shape of the room you were in. It changed the shape of the world outside the room, the way you looked out the window and the way that you saw what you were looking at. And from a very early age, what Bono came to appreciate was the power that music had to shape the reality that people lived in. And he was attracted to that power, so much so that it really set the path for the way that he would live his life. And for these disciples, being close to the power of Jesus, being close to the sheer greatness that Jesus exuded everything that, everywhere they went, was a path to something as well. In a lot of ways, this passage, re- here's an here's a example of, uh, that might help us understand it. In a lot of ways, this passage kind of reads like they're political operatives that are surrounding a candidate that's about to take office. 
And they're all kind of jockeying with each other about the way that they're going to serve in the new administration. And they're arguing with each other about what position of authority they might take just by being close to Jesus. Being close to Jesus, in some ways, the truly great one, was going to result in their own experience of personal greatness in some way. This argument that they have with each other really reveals, at least somewhat, some of the shape of the disciple's heart. And this is all too relatable for us, isn't it? Like in so many ways, we're all on a path somewhere. And we like to decide where that path is going. And there are things that we're trying to be close to and things that we're trying to avoid. And while there may be a spectrum of definitions in this room about how we all think about greatness, in some ways, it's all something that we're longing for. And it's into this that Jesus, the great one, begins to speak. And what I want to say he does is he begins to clarify for us what greatness actually looks like as God defines it. And I'm going to say two things this morning, two points. And what what I'm going to say is that he exposes some of our misperceptions about what greatness is. And he reorients our understanding of true greatness as Jesus gives it to us, as he lives it out for us, and as he promises it for us. So we see a number of ways that Jesus begins to, um, he, he is exposing misperceptions of greatness is what he's doing. And, and these, it's striking to me just how very common all of these things are. It's like almost in our very nature. These misperceptions that he is speaking to are as present today in our lives as they were for the disciples uh, when they were having this argument with each other. And the first mi- misperception is that they think that greatness is found in what people think about you. And I'm lifting this from the substance of the argument that the disciples are having with each other. It's in verse 24. He says that they are arguing about which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They're not actually arguing about who is the greatest. They're arguing about who is to be perceived as the greatest. They they are concerned about how they're going to be seen, how they're perceived, who's regarded as the greatest. There's another piece to this. The title benefactor is also mentioned in, 20, in, in verse 25. This is um, really interesting. This was a title that lords or kings or rulers would give themselves. It was like a self-determined way of saying as a king, this is the way I want people to think about me, whether it was actually true or not. Even tyrants were known to require to be called a benefactor. I was, uh, it's kind of like if you read fantasy literature, if you watch it, I was having this great conversation with friends last night about fantasy literature, but you'll notice that it's really confusing. You'll have all these kings or people in power in some way. They would all require that you would call them your grace or your magnificence or your majesty or something like that. Whether or not there was any element of grace or, or they were like magnificent or magisterial at all. They, it was a way of trying to shape 
the way people thought about them. And this was the way you would cultivate your own personal sense of greatness, was trying to control the way people thought about them. And Jesus is exposing that as a misperception in this passage. You see another misperception here, and he speaks to the idea that greatness is found in the power that you have over people. It's right there in verse 25. It says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. They think that greatness is found in your ability to command some kind of authority over the people around you. This came up earlier in Jesus' ministry as he interacts with a centurion. And the centurion says, I too am a man of authority. I tell some people to come and they come. I tell some people to go. And and the centurion is recognizing that even though he has some power, Jesus is existing uh, with some kind of uh, greater power than the centurion. And what Jesus is saying is that, that that actually doesn't define greatness here. He's speaking against that in this passage. And the other misperception that I want to talk about is that uh, greatness is found in your lifestyle. You see it in verse 27. Jesus asks the question, for who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? And what he's doing in this passage is he is drawing a line that we all see and that we all feel wherever we go. That there are those whose existence is in some kind of subservience to others. And there are those who who exist to be served. That there are those who recline at the table, which they were all doing. And then there are those who serve. And he's saying, who is greater? And the common perception, of course, is that greatness is found in your your, uh, your ability to cultivate a lifestyle where you are served. And what Jesus is doing is he's exposing all of these misperceptions of greatness for what they are. What he's actually doing is he's saying that all of these things are actually illusions. And these illusions of greatness are all around us. I, I, uh, you've probably seen this picture before. It looks kind of grainy to our eyes now, as most pictures from 1965 are. But it, 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 it is the picture of a boxer who recently renamed himself to Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston uh, in the boxing ring. And it just looks like the, the picture of power and greatness. He's standing, his shoulders look like bowling balls. He is 204 pounds of muscle standing over this guy he had just beaten. Yelling at him to get back up. Sports Illustrated put this picture on the cover of, uh, of their magazine with the title, uh, in 1965, mind you, they, they had the title, The Greatest Pictures, Sports Pictures of the Century, which I think is a really funny thing to do when you've got a third of a century left. <laughs> But the truth is, it really might be one of the greatest pictures of the, cent- of the century. I mean, it just exuded this sense of human greatness. But when you look at that picture, what you don't know is that the backstory of the fight that had just ended actually doesn't reveal anything great at all. In fact, there was speculation leading into that fight that, that Sonny Liston was going to take a dive to pay off some gambling debts that he had. And people were so concerned about the involvement in organized crime in, in this fight that uh, they couldn't actually find a venue for it. 
So what you don't know is that you look at this fight and, uh, and, and it's actually in Lewiston, Maine. What's the name of this facility? It's the Central Maine Youth Center in Lewiston, Maine, which the locals call the, the, the hockey rink. And if you look closely, when you look at this picture, you'll see that there are a lot of empty seats. And that's because that small venue was only about half full, which was, it was an unprecedentedly low attendance. And if the setting was bad, the fight was even worse, that, that uh, it was over in about a minute and a half. And after the fight, Ali speculated, I'm not even sure I connected. And in the boxing world, speculation has existed for this day about whether he actually hit him or not. And so what you have when you look at this picture is like this idea of something that's great, like a human that just achieved greatness at every level. But when you start to poke at it a little bit, It's exposed as the illusion that it is. And when Jesus is speaking to these things, that's what I want you to see, that that he is speaking to the images of greatness that we have, that we carry around us all the time. And he is saying, those things promise so much, but they deliver so little. And that while they may capture our imaginations for a time, they are propped up by a hollow sort of emptiness. And what Jesus is doing when he speaks to these things is he is serving us all by protecting us, by lifting the burden that, that these misperceptions of greatness place on our hearts. Because listen, running around worrying what people think about you is exhausting. Right? Right? Like, this is a burden that compels us to hide. This is a, this is a burden. Uh, this is, like, why we have secrets. This is why we work so hard at trying to control what people think about us. Like, some of our highest, some of, some of our most controlling instincts emerge when we're trying to uh, control what people see and what they don't see about us, right? Because we're... we're we imagine that greatness is found in the ability to control what people think about us. And we're, and we're giving people power, right? The power, like entrusting our worth to, to the whims of the people around us. And if that's exhausting, like the, the search for power or some kind of authority can be exhausting too. Like there is a reason that all of Shakespeare's, not all of them, that's an exaggeration. I mean to pull a Bono here, uh, that many of Shakespeare's plays are about a king that grows weary of the power, right, that they have. What did he say? He said, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. And Jesus is also protecting us from the burden of comfort. Now, that, that sounds really weird, right? That sounds really weird to say. But um, there is a burden to building a lifestyle that, that exists, kind of just trying to accumulate as much comfort as I can for myself. Like working out the equations of how much should I work in order to enjoy how much of my life and trying to make those things work with each other. There is exhaustion that's found in that place. Just trying to maximize the comfort that we experience in this life. And look, I know I'm oversimplifying here because we could talk about any one of those things all day long. But what I want you to see is that Jesus 
is speaking to these entirely common ways of thinking about our existence. Those really are the framework that, many, that most of the time we are operating with when we think about what greatness or our own greatness might look like. And he's saying that your misperceptions of greatness are actually placing burdens on your lives that you are not fit to carry. But you know what's interesting? Is that I read this passage and I don't think that Jesus is actually opposing the disciples' longing for greatness. In fact, not in this story or nor anywhere else do I see Jesus like actually telling them your love for greatness or your hunt for it is fundamentally wrong. I actually don't see that here. And in fact, I would think that if I were Jesus, which I'm not, thankfully, but if I were Jesus, I might be offended that they were having this conversation in my midst. But he actually appears gentle with them. And what he's doing is he is reorienting their understanding of what greatness actually is. He, he reorients their understanding by providing an example Did you see that in verse 27? He said, but I am among you as one who serves. If you want to understand greatness, you look to Jesus. And he is the one who is serving. In John's description of this passage, uh, he includes the story about Jesus. Like just a few minutes earlier, Jesus adopted the clothing of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. And the very next day, he will go and serve us all by offering the sacrifice that we couldn't pay to secure our justified standing before God. Jesus embodies greatness for us by living out service on our behalf. He, the great one, is also the great servant. That's the example that he sets for us. You also see it in mention of the steadfast commitment Look at verse 28. It's like he's saying to his disciples, I've already seen greatness in you. He says, you are those who have stood with me in my trials. Like there's greatness in that. When I, uh, I didn't ask you permission to tell this story, but I think it's going to be okay. I think you'll be all right. This is risky. Uh, So in in our first year of marriage, Shonda and I um, lived in this little cute little neighborhood outside St. Louis. And uh, most days, we would see this old married couple walking in the neighborhood. And they were very old. Like, I don't know if they're still alive anymore. But there was a sweetness to them because of the way they would walk. They would walk very close to each other. And most of the time, they were holding hands. And there was this, I mean, it made your heart melt every time you saw it. It was so sweet. Because there is an image of greatness in there. We don't know what the state of their marriage was like, but we know that marriage can be hard. And for a young couple, being able to see two people that have maintained this steadfast commitment to each other was a picture of greatness. And Jesus is saying, you are the ones that have stayed with me in my trials. There is greatness in your commitment to us. But let me tell you, some of the sweetest promises of God are of his commitment to you. That I will not leave you nor forsake you. Some of Jesus' last words are that I will be committed to you. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. 
And just a few, a few days after he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people. This is God being with his people. The Holy Spirit's ministry is the steadfast commitment of God to you. There's greatness there. And then finally, you see greatness. It's so sweet. You see greatness is coming. It's a really curious way the passage ends. He says there are even greater things to come. That you will have positions of, of authority in the, in, the, in the coming kingdom. He says that. Uh, and they will enjoy more dinners together sitting around the royal table. For the Christian, listen. We are at our best when we are most hungry for the days that are to come. For the days that Jesus promises us. That we are willing to suffer now. There are times where God calls us to go without. And we are at our best when we are longing for the promises of God that are coming when his kingdom is brought to their fullness. He's saying greatness is still coming. And he's anchoring us with that promise. My dad's probably going to kill me for telling me this story um, when he listens to it. This is two stories in a sermon. I didn't ask my family's permission, but um, he'll have to, I think he'll be okay. <laughs> I, I, it was a family Thanksgiving years ago. I was just remembering this. Um, I think it might have been 20 years ago. But um, after Thanksgiving, we all did what you do. You kind of drift back toward the football games or, or whatever, and you kind of find places to doze off. But we had this rule in my family growing up that either you cooked or you cleaned up after, you know? And I am sure that I was supposed to be a part of the group that was cleaning up after, uh, after the meal, but I wasn't doing that. I was uh, drifting off to sleep in front of a football game. And my dad, uh, my dad just set about the work of doing all the dishes. Like he just started cleaning them up. He was serving us all by doing all of this work. And uh, I remember feeling so bad uh, that I left that for him and I went up to him and I apologized to him. And, uh, and you know what he said? He said, it's okay, son. Just remember this when it's your family. Years ago, I never forgot that he said that. And in a lot of ways, that's what I want you to see Jesus telling his disciples, uh, telling his disciples to, he's speaking this to you and to me. He is telling them that if you want to know about greatness, look at the, the great ways that I've served you. That's the greatness that you're called to. And if you want to know about greatness, remember Jesus's commitment to you. And if you want to know about greatness, remember that there are greater things to come. That's the promise that he holds us with. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, you are the great one. And I pray that you would shape our spirits to settle for nothing less than the greatness that you're calling us to. The greatness that you promise us. Protect us from being too easily satisfied. And remind us again that thing that we were made for. I pray these things asking for your grace over each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.